0: Okay, we 're going to we 're going to go to Matthew chapter ten, and i don 't know if we 'll get finished with this chapter we 've done a number of things in in this previous chapter in this chapter Jesus was doing miracles, but he seemed to in matthew Matthew seemed to go a few miracles and then a teaching and then two three miracles and teaching well, he did a bunch of miracles, and now he does a teaching and i was i 'm wondering i mean the teaching is a little tough it 's a little harsh it 's a little difficult, the things that he shares, it's like he's trying to scare people away. And will, if, I, if I look at you a lot, you know, it's not that I'm picking on you, just, there's not that many people here to look at, so <laughs> if, it, if it bothers you, just tell me and I'll just look at the clock, okay? It's a little weird, I just feel like I should be sitting down in front, anyway. Uh, his teaching is a little tough, and, I, I, and I, I wonder if as he does miracles and more people begin to follow him and crowds grow, that he wants to give them an understanding of what it's like to follow him. And so he really pours things out in this next section of scripture that are kind of difficult, almost as if to push people away or to scare them or to, or to give them a dose of reality. And so we'll look at that. And the, there is a distinction that, that we need to have in our minds when we read, especially when we read um, the things that Jesus teaches and the way that he uh, explained things. Salvation is a free gift. Discipleship is costly. Salvation is for us. On our part, it's easy. Because Jesus did all the work. Discipleship costs us everything. And we need to be sure that we don't confuse that. Because I've heard it through the years that I've been following the Lord and listening to different people teach. At times, they seem to, they seem to add things to salvation um, and you can't add anything to salvation. I was thinking about that, how costly. How, how, trying to compare and understand the value of Christ's death, I often try to think of ways to, to explain it. A couple of years ago, I went to Phoebe home to visit somebody was there, and I parked my car, and I was pretty sure I was in a spot that was okay to park in. You know, it wasn't a no-parking zone, because they have some there. And I was pretty sure that I was in the right spot. So I went in and I was in, maybe an hour came back out and there's a ticket on my windshield. My, and I thought, I was sure this was an okay space. So I pulled the ticket off and it was, my inspection had run out. And so when they check to see if you're parked legally, they look at registration. So I had a $15 fine and I, I had to send it into the, to the city. Which, okay, all right, I, I somehow I missed that. But anyway, the point is this, that my, the fine was $15. Imagine that if I went into the court, if I went into the court to pay the fine and the judge says, listen, I'll pay it for you. Here's $3 trillion to pay your fine. And you think, well, that's ridiculous. So it's just a $15 fine. Why $3 trillion? The disparity between the fine and the resource to pay it Is huge, right? It's. I mean, I. The point is, our sin compared to the payment that Jesus made, the disparity between the two is so huge. What would What would the judge think if 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 I go in there? He says, "Okay, your your fine's fifteen dollars." But I'm going to pay it. Here's three trillion dollars, and I go, "Wait a minute! I have a couple pennies. Let me help." You know, it's ridiculous, right? So when it comes to salvation, Jesus paid such an incredibly huge price, actually infinite price, for our salvation that we can't add anything to it. It's just absolutely free. It's absolutely free. And all we have to do is believe that he did that for us, believe that he's the son of God and that he did that for us. But Jesus gives a lot of teachings that are hard, and and some people take some of these discipleship teachings and try to make them part of the gospel, and you can't do that. So anyway, let's just look at this. Verse 16, we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors, and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your Father speaking through you. So Jesus begins to say, listen, here's, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be thrown in jail. You're going to find um, opposition. He said, don't worry when you're taken into... In the court, uh, I'll give you the words to say. The Spirit will give you the words to say. But the the point is that God uses incredibly unique ways to do the things that He wants to do. You imagine the councils of heaven. Okay, we want to uh, witness, share the gospel with Caesar. How should we go about doing that? I know we'll have our followers arrested. You know what I mean? I mean that's God's way. And so God's ways of thinking and doing things are not anything like we would plan. Like if we wanted to do something positive, we wouldn't look for a negative way to do it, right? Normally, we wouldn't. And yet so many times that's exactly what God seems to do. He does something opposite the way that we think. And so he also tells us to be wise, to be wise as serpents, cunning as serpents, but as innocent as doves, which means humility is a key but he's also saying, don't, don't make trouble for yourselves. Don't be a wise guy. Be wise, not a wise guy. Uh, don't be a troublemaker. Don't look to stir up trouble. The reason for that is there'll be plenty of trouble if you're doing what's right. But don't make problems for yourselves. Sometimes uh, Christians have a, a, a way of doing that. And they actually try to use Satan's methods to spread the gospel. They try to use um, harsh words, difficult words, judgmental words, nasty words to try to tell people to straighten out their lives, tell the world to straighten out their lives. And when we do that, we're actually using the terminology or the language of hell to try to get people to join heaven, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, So in other words, be... Be as wise as serpents, but as innocent or gentle as as doves. Um, And the other the other point I think to this passage is that when we determine to follow Jesus and we decide to follow Him, we decide to, to serve Him with our lives, let there be a settledness, a settledness in our thinking and in our thought processes. That whatever happens whatever happens we know he's in control and we can never look at our circumstances and go this must be outside God's plan <laughs> because, because you just don't, you don't know I mean we need to pray we need to be sensitive there are times when the enemy comes at us but every time the enemy comes at us and seems to blindside us God can always turn that around for good and so there needs to be this confidence. So Jesus is telling him, listen, you're not going to avoid trouble following me. You're not going to avoid it. It's going to come. It's going to pursue you. You don't have to worry about making your own trouble. You're going to have enough of it. on earth. But don't worry. Things are going to be okay. I'm still in, I'm still in charge. I'm still in control. Well, we've not been, I, I, none of us have been arrested. There's certainly people around the world that are having a lot of uh, persecution. They haven't started arresting us yet, I should say. Um, but there are people around the, the world that are under extreme difficulty, and there's always grace. The grace of the Lord is always there um, to help. Now, why, why does God use unusual circumstances? Why does he use unusual means or methods for, for working through his people and for sh- spreading the gospel and for advancing the kingdom? I don't know if you ever thought about, why does he do that? Um, Why would he have Paul be thrown into prison and accused by the Jews just to get him to Rome to witness to Caesar and to the other leaders that he he, um, had the opportunity to share the gospel with? part of it, I think, is that he wants to demonstrate his own resourcefulness and his creativity and to display that he has wisdom beyond ours. But um, God, god I don't believe that God's, this is just my opinion, right? This is just my opinion. I think God sits up in heaven and says, okay, I'm going to be clever today. I think I'll be clever and just show them what I can do and just confound their wisdom. I do not I don't know that he tries to be tricky or clever or sneaky or any of that I think he just is who he is <laughs> I think he just does things the way he does things because it's who he is and it just on this side it seems like different or weird or or sneaky or tricky or whatever terms we might use to say that um, he doesn't try to be clever he just is you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that it's always necessarily purposeful. Um, and in Romans chapter 11, we, we read this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. That really says it for me. God's wisdom is so far above ours, his ways... We can't fathom. We can't trace them out. We can't figure them out. He sees things at a completely different level that, than we do, and we really try. I used to. I used to try. We used to read scripture and I think, "Okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna figure out the logic for why God did what He did in this particular situation in Scripture. I'm gonna figure out what the key is. I'm gonna I, look at what happened." how he responded, and the results that came. And if I can figure out God's logic in this, I'll be able to duplicate that and make things work for me. Do you ever try that? <laughs> I used to try it all the time. I, used, I thought, well, I just need to understand Scripture better. So I'd study Scripture more. I would dig into it and try to get more understanding and, and so I could, because I wanted God's mind because I wanted to be able to know what was coming and be able to make things work but actually really to be in control. I wanted to be in control. So I thought, if I can really get a handle on this, and the truth of the matter is, God's wisdom is so far above ours that we never will figure it out. We never will. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You ever try to counsel the Lord? Uh, you say no. You, I mean, when you pray, do you re- don't you really try to convince him uh, that he really ought to change his ideas about things or thoughts about? say you know, you've tried to be his counselor. You know, sometimes we we do that when we pray. Um, and it can happen very easily. It can happen very easily when you're praying for healing for somebody. Lord, we just Lord, just pray for this person that you bring healing because they've been a good person and they've done this and they've done that and you know they they deserve this and they deserve and we're counseling the Lord on what he should do, <laughs> right? That doesn't work either. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so there needs to be in our, in our minds, in our hearts, in our thoughts, there needs to be a settledness that God is in control. He loves us. And we can't, the prayer that already prays for me every day for me from Isaiah that I would not judge by what my eyes see or decide by what my ears hear but by what the spirit is saying. Can't judge any circumstance or anything that comes our way or anything that happens to us to be right or wrong, good or not good, or from God or not from God based on our intellect, but based on his His spirit, what his spirit, because I think sometimes God is just setting the enemy up. Sometimes he's just setting Satan up for, for a for a fall, but he can't let us in on it because we'd spoil the gig. We'd... we'd Say something or do something that would clue the enemy in on what he's doing. And, and we just need to faithfully, obediently follow what he calls us to do. Verse 21 in Matthew chapter 11. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. These are not encouraging words. You know? I mean, these people were, were gathering around Jesus because he had life in him. He was bringing healing, and they saw him deliver um, people from demonic oppression, and, and they were enamored with him, and they were... Following him, and the crowds were growing, growing, and then he, he starts saying these kinds of things. That here's what's going to happen. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will, will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. So why does he allow that? Why would the members of our own family be the ones who turn against us? And maybe if we understand that, if we remain faithful to the Lord even when those who are closest to us turn against us. See, God knows the level of our commitment, He knows where our hearts are, He knows how really committed we are to Him. He doesn't have to test us, He knows. He knows better than we do. We just don't know. We don't know the level of our commitment. We don't know how sincere we are. And so the tests come to be an enlightening agent or tool for us. And he wants us to be able to stand, and he wants us to be able to stand against the enemy and to maintain and hang on to the truth without fear and without doubt. What are the first things that attack us when opposition comes or when really horrible, difficult circumstances happen in our lives? Fear and doubt, fear and doubt, fear and doubt. And we need, what we need is faith and trust in him, and so he allows the tests to come. He's not saying that we need to make enemies of our family not supposed to do that purposely. That's not what he's saying. But if that's something that happens to us, then we need to realize that he warned us and we had to be... We need to just stand firm. Verse 24, The student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household... And so if Jesus was called the devil, how much more will we be considered to be or called the devil? We aren't above Jesus, but we're to be like him. People will think ill of us. Um, These are kind of discouraging words, aren't they? Kind of, they're kind of discouraging words. And what? Why is Jesus doing that? Well, if a general went before his army and told his soldiers to prepare and said, "Listen, uh, the enemy's out there, and they have some guns, but our guns are better, and uh, nobody's going to get hurt, and we just ha- just you know just hold hands and sing kumbaya." Now let's go to battle and get wiped out. <laughs> discipleship, Jesus understood that discipleship following him was going to be difficult, it was going to be hard, and we need to prepare, be prepared for that hardship. We have the victory. He told his disciples at the point that he has defeated all of the powers of the enemy, and he has all authority, and he stripped the enemy of... Everything that he had, however, in order for us to enforce the decree that came through the cross, there's battle. There's battle. And so he's trying to be realistic. But what's, what's the deal with that? I ran into a verse a number of years ago. We've used it in other applications, and it's Judges chapter 3. And I, it's really enlightening scripture. Um, Judges chapter 3. Judges is the time period after the conquest of the land. Joshua had led the people into Palestine, into the area that became known as Israel. Um, They had defeated many of the enemies. The people had settled in the lands, and then a new generation came. Joshua was gone, and the period of the Judges came. But there were still enemies in the land. They hadn't gotten rid of everybody. And so it says this, these are the nations the Lord left, she These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. So he left them there to test them and he left the enemies there to teach them warfare. So it's important for us to learn to fight. Every time... We see something like this in the Old Testament Which is a physical thing There were actually physical enemies That the Israelites had to fight There's a spiritual application There's, For those of us in the New Testament time Or in the, in the New Covenant And it's that God wants us to learn warfare We need to learn how to fight We need to learn how to and engage the enemy It's a test for us but we need to learn warfare. The generation that grew up after Joshua's generation ne- never fought. They had no idea what it was like to conquer the enemy and take over land. And God knew that if they didn't, weren't war tested, if they didn't learn warfare, that they would succumb to the sinfulness of the people that were there. And so he says it's important that you learn warfare. It's important for us to learn warfare. Go to the next verse, which is verse They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses. So what this is saying is that God allows enemies into our lives to actually test our faithfulness to his word and to his truth. The temptation is that when difficulties come is to give up or to give in or to just go along. And enemies are actually very purposeful (laughs) in God's way of thinking in order to get us to where we need to be. In order for us to live godly lives, there has to be opposition. There has to be enemies to conquer. Why? It's because we need to learn how to fight. We need to to learn how to fight properly. And if we aren't already engaging the enemy, if we aren't already taking him on in the proper way, well, then we're already losing. We're already losing the battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5 says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we don't fight, it's not people that we're fighting. We don't fight flesh and blood. And we don't fight with the weapons of the world. And we don't fight with the weapons of the enemy. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. So here's the point. Where's the battle? Where's your biggest battle with the enemy? Right here. Right here in your head. Your thoughts. Your thoughts. When the enemy brings things into our lives and causes doubt and fear, where's the battle? The battle's in your mind for trusting and for not giving in to hopelessness. That's where the battle is. Our biggest, our biggest enemy is not Satan and it's not people, it's you. It's me, it's me. And for you, it's you. Because that's where seeds of doubt grow and that's where the battle is really won. And the truth of the matter is that if we can get our, our minds completely settled, our souls, our soul is our mind, will, and emotions. If we can get our souls to the point where we fully trust God... Then there's no weapon that the enemy can use against us that will take us out. You just won't be able to. Jesus. Yeah. Sure. sure. Last year in the County, there were only 10 that going down, there were 79 suicide. There were how many? Seven, uh, six, 79 suicide. There were how many before? Oh, oh oh, I see. I see what you mean. Right, right. It's not what other people do to you, it's what we do to ourselves. So there you go. Jesus said to his disciples, getting close to the time of his crucifixion, he said,, um, "Oh, I've got to find that. I, I'm going to look something up." Jesus said, "It was so good. Oh, there it is, good. Um <laughs> I, had a, I, I, I looked it up this morning after I'd already put my sermon notes in, and it's in my email on my iPad. And so I thought, oh, I need to get online and pull up, but it's right there. Jesus said to his disciples about the time that he was about to be crucified, he said, the prince of this world is coming after me, but he has nothing in me. He has no place in me. He has no attachment to me, which means that there's no place where a, where a, a thought of the enemy has found any fertile ground in his mind. And so I looked up that word, nothing. The enemy has nothing in me. And it's the Greek word, oudais. Listen to this. It means no one or nothing at all, is a powerful negating conjunction. It rules out by definition, for example, shuts the door objectively and leaves no exceptions. It is deductive in force, so it excludes every or any example that is included within the premise or supposition. Udice categorically excludes declaring as a fact that no valid example exists. That's really powerful. In other words, it's like there ain't no way, nothing, no thought anywhere, anyplace place all in Jesus' soul that the enemy had any hold. No place. Categorically none. No way. What would it be like to live like that? I mean, that's just amazing. And that's, that's the point. That's the point. And I think when Jesus is saying all these things, being so negative, <clears throat> he didn't walk around depressed. He didn't walk around worried. He didn't walk... He, he was filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And so even with all this other stuff going on and knowing that he was going to the cross and saying, this is what happens. So if the teacher is called Beelzebub how much more his students? And he was called Beelzebub. You are the prince of demons, Jesus. You're mad, you're crazy. And yet within him, there was no, he never gave in to those curses being hurled at him and never gave in to those thoughts. He was just resolute in his stance because he knew the truth and he didn't give it any place. So how do we, how do, we do that? Well, we have to take every thought captive and make it obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I also, I also thought that love... Jesus loved in a way that is seemingly difficult for us to enter into, but love is the most powerful force in the world. And sometimes it's hard for for me to even think that way. But I don't think that we've seen, other than Jesus, I don't think that we've ever seen somebody who really walks in that kind of love because very few people are skilled at walking in love effectively. I don't think that that if there ever were someone besides Jesus who learned to walk in love to the ultimate, nobody could stand against them it would, it's, it's an incredible power it's an incredible force. The problem with us is that we start to walk in a little bit and then we cower or we back down or we give up or we you know run away or, or we allow the lies to come in to, to take away our trust and all those things. And so I think that if, if we became determined in our minds, to, in our souls, to walk in love, love for God, love for people, love for ourselves, we be indestructible <laughs> would you like to be indestructible i think that's i think that's amazing i think that's what jesus had he had that ability to um, just stand strong in the face of opposition so really what he's doing when he's giving these teachings and you think man these are really discouraging but when you look at jesus and you see the kind of life that he lived he knew all those things going going into it and yet he wasn't discouraged He wasn't put down. He wasn't shut down by it. He just said, hey, it's going to come. But it's almost like, let it come. I'm ready. You know, like a Navy SEAL. A Navy SEAL is trained to go after things like that. And they love the challenge. They love the challenge. They love the, give me a mission. Give me a mission that's difficult. Give me a, a mission where I have to be pushed to the extreme limits of my ability to survive. Go ahead. Give it to me. I want it. We need to have that kind of an attitude in our relationship with God and in our outworking of the, of, the, of the Christian life. We need to prepare ourselves and train ourselves, our thoughts, our souls, our minds, our wills, and em- our emotions so that, bring it on. Not that we go looking for trouble, not stirring up trouble, but when that opposition comes to be, ha- to, to be in that place where we say, bring it on, I'm gonna stand and I'm not crumbling, you're gonna crumble. Circumstances, you're gonna crumble, not me. Or if there's incredible darkness, darkness you're not gonna survive, light is coming, truth is coming, hope is coming, love is coming, and it's coming through me by the power of the Spirit. The question, I guess, for us this morning, as we just think about the the verses that we've looked at, are you ready, are you wanting to be a soldier, are you wanting to be a disciple of Jesus? Are you wanting to be a person who goes after it Realizes that opposition is going to come, but you're going to stand no matter what. That you're going to love no matter what. That you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to produce in you the fruit of the Spirit beyond measure. That's the question. We have had people who have said to us, And we lost our son Ben. We had somebody that Christian that said Man, you guys serve the Lord, you walk with the Lord, you've been faithful to him. If that's what happens to people who serve the Lord, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to go to that level of commitment. Huh. <laughs> you know? And Jesus says, the only way it's really going to work is if you give it all. And so he wasn't going to make it easy. He wasn't going to say, listen, it's a piece of cake. You trust me as your savior and we'll walk together and everything's going to be roses and petunias. (laughs) No, no. But the rewards are great. The rewards are great. The glory of the Lord will shine on us. And God, the the Father, will be pleased with us when we're willing to be those kinds of sacrifices for him. So just some things to think about today.